what was the reason? Why was this being done? Was it, in fact, directed against the diplomats, as you've mentioned, or did it have another purpose? Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today and joined in the studio by Foreign Policy staff writer Robbie Gramer. Joining us by phone are John Glassman and James Shoemaker. Ambassador John Glassman is a retired career Foreign Service officer who was previously Director for Government Policy of Northrop Grumman Corporation's electronic systems sector. While at the State Department, Ambassador Glassman served in many countries, including Afghanistan. Ambassador Glassman also served as the assistant to the Vice President of the United States and as Deputy Assistant for National Security Affairs. James Shoemaker, a retired Foreign Service officer, served in various capacities in the United States government with professional expertise in the Soviet Union, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Afghanistan, and Yugoslavia. ER listeners, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. We wanted to talk today about something that was revealed earlier this fall by the State Department, which is that American diplomats based in Cuba have suffered from possible hearing damage, among other symptoms. Um, Since then, an almost hysteria over sonic weapons has exploded online, and the number of diplomats said to be experiencing health effects, which may also include brain damage, has also now increased. Quote, we hold the Cuban authorities responsible for finding out who is carrying out these health attacks, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said. The device or possible weapon that was used to cause the effects apparently made no sound, we were told originally. Since then, the Associated Press has revealed um, an audio of what they say was a sound that diplomats heard, and it sounds something like this. Yet there is still no credible evidence of any device, whether audible or non-audible, that could cause all of the damage and the symptoms being described. Um, But what I wanted to turn to today as well is not just the events in Cuba, but an interesting history that it turns out this isn't the first time the U.S. government suspected a foreign country of targeting its diplomats with a secret, invisible weapon. In 1965, medical workers began showing up at the American embassy in Moscow drawing blood from the employees inside. Um, the, The diplomats, the American diplomats, were told the doctors were looking for possible exposure to a new type of virus, something not unexpected in a country known for its frigid winters. Turns out this was all a lie. The Moscow viral study, as it was called at the time, was really a cover story for an American government top secret investigation to the effects of microwave radiation on humans. Um, It turns out that the Soviets were bombarding the embassy in Moscow with low-level microwaves. Um, The Moscow signal, as officials in Washington called the radiation, was too low to do any obvious harm to the people in the building. But at five microwatts per square centimeter, the signal was also well below the threshold needed to heat things, as a microwave oven does. But it was also 100 times more powerful than the Soviets' maximum exposure standards, which were much more stringent than those in the United States. Um, And this had launched a top-secret investigation that went on for really well over a decade. And during this whole time, the American diplomats serving in the embassy well into, I believe, the 1970s were told nothing. John and James, I'm going to get to you in a second to talk about it because both of you served in the U.S. embassy in Moscow at the time that it was being irradiated, at the time of the Moscow signal. But first, I want to ask Robbie to address the Cuba situation briefly of what we know as of today and 
what has been the U.S. government's response and, and what diplomats have been told so far as you know? Yeah, thanks. What we know is not a lot. It's a really interesting story to follow. It's one of the weirdest diplomatic mysteries in the post-Cold War world. Basically, in 2016, these diplomats in Cuba started showing a variety of disparate symptoms, including nausea, dizziness, some temporary hearing loss, some permanent hearing loss. And it wasn't until later that the U.S. government you know, identified this as a trend and pattern. But essentially this fall, they um, they came out and said that there was a series of health incidents, quote unquote, directed at American diplomats. They've since upgraded that and said that there were attacks against U.S. diplomats. About 20, uh, 22 or almost a half dozen diplomats have been impacted. Um, and since this came out, they've, of course, slapped Cuba on the wrist, saying that they're responsible for protecting American diplomats. But interestingly enough, they've stopped short of accusing the Cuban Cuban government of actually doing it, which is remarkable because this administration is so hawkish toward Cuba. But what they have done in response is withdraw over half of American diplomats from our mission in Cuba, and in addition, issued a travel warning to all American citizens going to Cuba. So we don't know who or what is responsible at this point. But one thing is clear is that, you know, if someone is responsible, it appears they want to drive a wedge between the U.S. and Cuba. And if that's their aim, then then it's working. That's fascinating. So let's now turn back to, you know, uh, decades ago when we had some similarity in the fact that the embassy was being targeted in Moscow. John, can you tell us what years were you in the embassy there? And what and when did you find out about the Moscow signal, about this microwave signal that was going into the embassy? Right. I was there between 1971 and 73, and these were years we had the uh, Nixon summit in uh, Moscow, so things were uh, going um, more smoothly than they had in the past. We found out about it while we were there, and of course it was it was shocking, and particularly the question that came to all of us was, what was the reason? Why was this being done? Was it, in fact, directed against the diplomats, as you've mentioned, or to have another purpose, and the kind of speculation was there, was they thought perhaps it was being used to charge batteries of listening devices, perhaps it was being used to pick up uh, vibrations and window panes and other materials that might allow the Russians to understand what was going on up there. And so the question was whether it was a thing that was directed against the diplomats, or was this damage, or not, or damage comes later, but was this a, you know, effect on people who were there, which we perceive that there was some, was it a side effect of something that had another purpose to it. And what's fascinating about that is, so you were there in 71. I looked at, for the book I had done on the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, their involvement in investigating this, which was really between 1965 and 1969, when one of the serious theories that was floated was that it was a weapon of mind control, that these microwaves being used to influence the behavior of diplomats or cryptographers in the embassy. By 69, this was pretty well rejected. But what's interesting for me, is, you know, so by 1969, 1970, it sounds like they pretty well knew it wasn't, you know, a mind control device, but it had some technical purpose. And yet they still didn't tell you, right? You were not informed this was going on, correct? We were informed at some point between 71 and 73. How this was done, why it was done, I don't recall, but we were all knowledgeable that it was occurring. And I remember when we went up some of the higher floors of the embassy building, there were still people who were sitting 
with their heads uh, against open windows in summertime. And so, you know, say, well, these things are coming through. So I think it should be shielded. But it was a question that was disturbing to everyone. What, you know, there was that two-year gap. Why why wasn't anyone informed between those two years? Between 1969 and 71, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no, no one has any idea. I mean, there were other things besides this. I mean, there was a question, again, of the uh, Kissinger's desire to have to talk with the uh, Soviet Union. So I think there was a lot of uh, political reasons that were used for not making it a, uh, a crisis. Yeah, I recently read a memoir of a physicist. He wrote a short review article. He was actually, he's a physicist who worked for the intelligence community, worked for the Pentagon, and he was one of the people, his name was Sam Kozlov, and he was sent over with, a, I think, a couple physicians contracted by the State Department to help explain what was going on to diplomats. So I don't know that you spoke to him specifically, but when you were first informed of this, what were your questions or what was being done to address it? I assume you asked about shielding and whether it you know, was a potential you know, cause of cancer. I mean, I, I don't know what questions were raised at the time. People were not aware that it would have any health consequences, but I would say, and this is something that contradicts the Johns Hopkins epidemiological survey that was done subsequently, that there were people in the embassy who had some encounter with cancer, let's say, and I do remember the uh, young wife of one of the people working the fence at, at the Chase office who had some kind of cancer. I do remember a uh, security person. I do remember people who, after leaving Moscow, subsequently a couple who lived in the embassy, uh, the husband or a close friend of mine actually died of brain cancer, and his wife had breast cancer. Uh, these are people in their 20s and 30s, and I, I don't recall in, in normal life here in the States that we know many people in that age group who, who contract cancer. Jim, turning to you for a second, um, because you you and John know each other, but actually from Afghanistan, I don't think you you said you didn't serve at the same time in Moscow. So can you tell us about the years you served and what you were told at the time? Well, uh, yeah, that's true. John and I served together in Afghanistan, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, at the end of the, at the closing of the embassy, I believe. That's right. When the, when the Soviets evacuated in 89, we did too. Oh, wow. uh, and it was a good decision. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I actually knew a lot about the microwave situation going into Moscow because I was there later between 1977 and 1979. And between John's tour and mine, Ambassador Stessel had raised a big stink about the fact that the embassy community was being kept in the dark about the microwave situation. And so a lot of information came out, which had an unfortunate effect because it, it led to um, a, a renewal of a lot of the conspiracy theories that had been floated in the 1960s about the microwave. And the conspiracy theories being, you know, that the mind control and whatnot that was actually investigated? Yeah, the uh, Project Pandora, the, uh, what you wrote about. Right. The, uh, the thing was that, uh, you know, many uh, embassy uh, families, spouses in particular, got this idea in their heads that it was a mind control device, and that created an extra stress on the embassy community, which is, you know, it being Moscow and the Brezhnev era, uh, was already under severe stress anyway. Now, you said that diplomats were kept in the dark. So, I guess one of my questions is, what were you told? What were the people in the embassy told? Well, we weren't really told that much, but a lot leaked out, frankly, because of the news media 
uh, New York Times, Washington Post, other correspondents who were in Moscow at the time were reporting uh, pretty constantly on the issue. And also, we couldn't help but notice that uh, for some strange reason, there were Soviet technicians up on the, the ninth floor of the embassy, and we were wondering, why are we inviting Soviet technicians into the embassy? And it turned out that they were side-by-side side measuring microwave levels with American technicians. And, of course, the Soviets, uh, their, their machines didn't detect any microwave radiation at all, and ours, of course, did. What a coincidence. Yeah, that, that, was, a, that was sort of a failed experiment in uh, diplomacy, you might say. But uh, shortly after that, we put up screens on the upper floors of the embassy facing uh, the direction of the microwave emanation. Basically, after that, I stopped thinking about the issue because I thought it had been solved. But that's amazing. So those screens went up, if I remember right, this would have been the late 1970s, right? Yeah, they went up sometime during my tour. But, you know, frankly, you're under such pressure in Moscow and you're running around doing so many crazy things that you don't really notice these things at the time. It's just later it comes back to you, oh, yeah, that happened, and that seemed a little strange. Right. And the thing is, so if the screens went up in around the late 1970s, which I I remember I think was from the newspaper reports, that the signal itself is believed to have started around 1953, I believe. So this is essentially over 25 years that no shielding was done. Yeah, that's right. I I mean, it, it started... Stalin made uh, the embassy move from just off Red Square to this building just off uh, Ulitsa Tchaikovskova uh, in 1953, and the signal apparently started just as we moved into that building. Another coincidence. Yeah, how about that? And in terms of health effects, um, John talked about, you know, what at least, you know, perceived was a very high rate of cancer among people that were quite young. Um, what has your experience been with your coworkers or people you keep in touch with? Um, I've, <clears throat> I've noticed similar uh, anecdotal information of, of a higher incidence of cancer, particularly leukemia. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, Ambassador Stessel himself uh, uh, died of leukemia in 1986. As John alluded to, there was a Johns Hopkins epidemiological study of diplomats who served in the embassy. And that report, which itself, I recall, was very controversial, concluded that there weren't elevated rates of cancer, but there were a lot of questions raised about that report. Yeah, personally, I, I don't think that the, uh, the study uh, was done with the proper methodology. And they did another study in 1981, which was much more thorough, but it also, uh, I believe, was highly flawed. Uh, And I think that uh, there was even another study done after that, according to some of my colleagues who served at the embassy uh, in later years. But I I really think that the whole issue uh, needs to be revisited because I I do uh, believe myself, uh, based on personal experience, um, that the incidence of cancer, particularly leukemia, is much higher uh, in the embassy Moscow population than, than it is uh, in the American population at large. So let me ask a question before I turn it back to Robbie for a second. Do, does the State Department or the U.S. government, for either of you, Jim or John, does it keep in contact with you? Are, are there ongoing statistics data that are collected on this? No. No, it, 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 Jim's right. And not only that, uh, one of the recommendations of the original Johns Hopkins study was that there should be following up after a study for 10 years, every two years, uh, especially the group who served there after, between 1975 
in 76, when the Russians elevated the intensity of the radiation, that, that uh, recommendation was not followed up. The other fault, which I think Jim was alluding to, is that the original Johns Hopkins study compared the health status of those in Moscow with other American diplomats serving in Eastern Europe, then under communist government. So the question which is raised, uh, it was denied that these other embassies were subject to uh, radiation. And if one takes the uh, idea that this was done for counter-Russian uh, intelligence purposes, this radiation, why the other allies in the Warsaw Pact would not have been using the similar kinds of procedures sort of uh, raises a number of interesting questions. Yes. So yeah. these are problematical. Right. Robbie, you had yeah, something. Um, I was just wondering, you know, you, you'd both criticize the studies that, that were done on this. Do you think that was incompetence on the part of the, you know, scientists, or do you think it was that, I don't know, the government was trying to sweep something under the rug? I, I don't think it was incompetence that people doing the studies were, were highly competent. I think that at the time the studies were done, however, frankly, the Soviets knew an awful lot more about microwave radiation than we did. And the studies themselves uh, started off with flawed methodologies. In the, uh, uh, the 81 study, they did an extraordinarily detailed uh, technical study of uh, the effect of microwaves and exactly where they hit and which windows and all of this. And, but uh, they were unable to actually come up with a list of uh, Americans who were working in the embassy at the time uh, because many agencies refused to provide a roster. That's amazing. So they didn't even know who... Oh. They, didn't, they didn't know uh, what population to actually study in these uh, two Johns Hopkins uh, efforts. So when, when did these signals stop? Uh, in the late 1980s. And was there was there any political shift that you think might have stopped it? Did it just randomly stop and it's still a mystery? Well, it stopped under Gorbachev uh, right at the point when r relations between uh, the United States and, and uh, the Soviet Union were improving radically. Uh, you know, the, the Soviet Union was, was basically reforming itself, and who knows if that had anything to do with it, but uh, it's certainly an inter interesting coincidence. I'm curious, when the two of you saw the reports from Cuba, I mean, for myself, having looked at this episode of history, although a little bit earlier, because I really focused on the 1960s, um, and I have to admit, when you, I, John, when you contacted me, I, I hadn't really realized that even into the 1970s, they weren't really informing diplomats about it. But when both of you heard about Cuba, did you have an immediate reaction? Because my first thought was, there are a lot of similarities, certainly not in whatever technology or perhaps it's being used, but both in the way that the government handled it or is handling it in real time now and in how sort of mixed the, the, the symptoms are, which makes it hard in the absence of knowing what's causing it to come up with a real scientific explanation. I served in Cuba myself, by the way. I was the deputy when we opened the mission there between 1977 and 79. The story is that uh, the Russians and Cubans long have cooperated on intelligence. So since after the Cuban Missile Crisis to about 2002, the Soviet Union operated a signal interception station at Lourdes in a suburb of Havana, which they used to intercept uh, telephone conversations initially, but later uh, telemetry and other uh, 
U.S. Uh, missile tests and so forth from Cuba. That was suspended in 2002, but renewed in 2014 when Putin came to visit Havana. So, uh, again, that was there. The other thing, the Chinese, for example, the Chinese uh, prime minister visited Cuba around 2014 also. He talked about cooperation in four areas, one of which would be intelligence. So this idea of uh, electronic surveillance of the United States has a long tradition. In um, Cuba, now when I heard about that, the idea of inaudible sound or inaudible sound transmissions that caused uh, damage, I mean, that's infrasound. I mean, there's a sound below 20 uh, cycles, which the human ear cannot hear, but if that transmitted at sufficient intensity, one can perceive it. Infrasound uh, exists. It, uh, it could be used for various purposes, which we can speculate on. But uh, it was not a surprise that this was being used. Infrasound uh, in the past was difficult to direct. If you have know, ultrasound, which is higher than the human can hear, that can be very directed, but it, it attenuates at a very close distance. Infrasound can be transmitted for a very long distance, for uh, various kilometers. And so infrasound is probably what what is being used. For the purpose of what it's being used, we can only speculate. I imagine that it, foreign intelligence agencies spy on American embassies all over the world, and the technologies are more or less pretty similar. So what makes Cuba special here? Uh, nothing makes it special. I, I doubt if anyone uh, is moderately or conscious of uh, whether it be microwave, whether it be infrasound, whether it be lasers. You know, these things exist, and many, if you didn't know, you would not know what's happening. Uh, for instance, if someone's putting a laser vibrometer, calibrating the vibrations of your window, or somebody is transmitting ultrasound for various purposes. I mean, you might remember that in the old days, our television remote controls were not done by uh, optical means. They were done by, by uh, infrasound. <laughs> Uh, that a few people realize that elephants communicate with infrasound over various kilometers. There's a lot that the general public doesn't know about these phenomena, but uh, espionage probably exists. In Cuba, there were complaints by a number of diplomats. They relate to the uh, uh, power that uh, this infrasound was being transmitted by, and so we call attention to it. And I think it's a good thing to know. Well, Robbie, I have a question for you. One of the things that's been so confusing for me about the reports out of Cuba was the first reports was that it was inaudible. And then the later report, especially with the AP, which broadcast the signal that diplomats heard, was clearly audible. I understand there can be confusion among reports, but this is sort of coming out in drips and drabs from State Department leaks. What what do you think is going on, or is it just hard to say right now? I mean, at this point, it's hard to say. I've talked to senior State Department officials who say we literally have no idea what is going on. Um, it's difficult because some uh, victims of this attack described hearing audible sounds and some did not. Some described hearing it throughout the room they were in. Some described hearing it in only one specific part of the room where if they took a step to the left or right, then they wouldn't hear it anymore. And to make matters more confusing, they all have a wide range of different symptoms from, you know, nausea and dizziness to permanent hearing loss or, you know, um, 
even impaired brain function in, in some cases. Um, and you're right, it's, it's coming out in this drip-drip fashion, so, so it's, it's really difficult to, to know what's going on. The U.S. government has a full investigation into this. Who is doing the investigation? I mean, the, the State Department is obviously involved, as I understand it, so is the FBI. Um, but the, the fact that the, you know, an administration that is so hawkish on Cuba has been reluctant to outright blame the Cuban government for this when it would be so easy to do if it was, you know, an easy open and shut case is pretty significant. And it, and it just shows that no one really knows what is going on yet. What's also sort of interesting and disturbing for me is there's obviously two considerations here. There's the national security considerations of, you know, the tendency to keep something, if we know something, to keep it secret versus the obvious sort of moral and ethical imperative to share as much information as possible with the diplomats. John and Jim, as, as two people who weren't really given as much information on the health side as probably you would have wanted, what do you think State Department's obligations should be in these circumstances to to the diplomats who served in Cuba and are serving. Well, uh, this is Jim speaking. I, I, I think uh, they have an obligation, a moral obligation, to share whatever information is known uh, with our diplomats and, and uh, uh, families in some cases, simply to make up for the fact that uh, in many other instances, uh, the microwaves uh, episode, for instance, but also you might remember something called NPPD, which was uh, a supposedly carcinogenic substance that the KGB was smearing on doorknobs in order to track American diplomats around Leningrad and Moscow uh, back in the 1980s. I had no idea. <laughs> this was also kept under wraps for way too long and, and then uh, caused basically what happens in the absence of candor uh, with your own employees uh, it creates suspicions and conspiracy theories when, when perhaps there is nothing to it. In the case of NPPD, for instance, it turned out that what was feared initially to be a carcinogenic substance was just a substance uh, that enabled the KGB to track our people more easily. Uh, so, you know, if, if uh, the department has a natural tendency uh, to uh, be conflict-averse and if you, you can, if if you can tamp down uh, on something and and uh, and not spread around a lot of information, uh, that tends to reduce the possibility of a conflict. Uh, unfortunately, uh, embassy personnel often become victims because they're they're basically in an information vacuum on many of these issues. Yeah, John, do do you have thoughts on that? I do indeed. Uh, my agree totally with what the Tim is saying. And also, you have to remember that another motivation for this in the Cuban case might be harassment. I mean, we all know from our service in Moscow, the telephone calls we get, the acts of uh, vandalism, like car windows were all broken out. In Cuba, I remember people breaking into my house, throwing things on the floor, uh, all these kinds of things, harassment. The idea they that in these kinds of regimes, they want to create a sense that the uh, diplomats, the American diplomats there, are uh, subject to uh, the, the host regime can do anything to them. And that is personally, presumably to make them more cautious, to make them afraid, 
to make them unable to do their, their work. So that the idea of keeping a secret, generating all kinds of fears and so forth, plays into that idea of harassment, which is a very uh, major activity of these people. Barbie, I have a question about that. In terms of when these reports first came in, timing-wise, they would have started in 2016 under Obama when relations were getting better. Yeah. Uh, so I guess what, my question is, between harassment versus surveillance, which is the most likely scenario, um, it's hard to know. But politically speaking, it doesn't sound like a time where the Cuban government would have sanctioned a lot of harassment, right? Or, no. or perhaps— yeah, that's correct. And, um, you know, in, in addition, the um, top Obama administration officials um, have since come out and said, um, you know, we began rapprochement with Cuba um, and, you know, reopened diplomatic relations, I think, in 2015 um, and have since come out and said we had no idea this was going on while we were in talks to do that. Um, and But of course, you would think that um, particularly if the Cuban government wanted to open itself up a little bit more to the United States that it would, um, you know, not want to rock the boat, so to speak, with, uh, you know, an administration that has come out so so hard against the regime. There's there's really just not enough evidence at this point to say whether it's, you know, harassment or something else because we don't know what it is yet. But does it appear that the administration is leaking this information to bolster its Cuba policy or is that hard to say as well? I'm not sure if it's leaking information to bolster its Cuba policy, but it has certainly leveraged this in uh, these incidents to, you know, pull back its diplomatic relations with Cuba. Like I said, it, they withdrew half our diplomats. They issued a travel warning to all Americans. You know, this is a significant step backwards in U.S.-Cuba relations for those who you know, are proponents of of forging stronger ties between the two country. Um, and, you know, I've, you know, talking to people around the State Department, um, a lot of the people who were, uh, or a lot of the diplomats who were pulled back from the embassy were pretty upset. They wanted to stay there. They wanted to do their jobs. And, you know, foreign service officers and, you know, diplomats might not be on the front lines in war zones, but they also put their lives at risk and they, they travel to dangerous places. So they know that there is some danger involved with the job. And it seems like a pretty conspicuous backlash against what's only happened to a few dozen people that they're withdrawing half their staff and issuing a travel warning to all U.S. citizens. Yeah, I guess it's also what's interesting for me, John and Jim. I mean, both of you were informed of this, but it wasn't like either of you said we're leaving Moscow. I mean, it, it sounds like the diplomats, even when informed, were very committed to the job they were doing. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah. you're both laughing too, so I don't. Yeah, know. yeah. Both both John and I have have been in situations that were considerably more dangerous than Moscow, like Kabul. <laughs> Right. Uh, we can talk about Kabul another time, but just to give back to the point uh, your colleague uh, just raised about improvement of relations, and you've got to understand that these people, people in the Cuban regime, don't view the political process perhaps in the same way we do. I just, for a case, case in point, that in 1977, we opened up in Cuba under the premise the Cubans were then in Angola. Uh, the premise was that they were not going to intervene anywhere else. Okay, well, number one, <laughs> a few months later, they intervened in Ethiopia. Uh, number two, in the, their initial staffing in 1977, they opened up the intersection in Washington. Every single person in that uh, intersection was an intelligence agent. 
There wasn't a single normal diplomat there. The way they, they conceive of the, this rapprochement is uh, considerably different than perhaps the way we conceive it. Yeah, that, that's a really good point, that there are definitely elements of the Cuban government who weren't fans of uh, the opening of U.S. or the opening of relations with the U.S., especially because the embargo was such an easy scapegoat for those in power. You know, if things weren't going well in Cuba, then they could just blame it on the big, bad United States. Well, just so we don't keep listeners in suspense, um, what was concluded many years later um, about the the so-called Moscow signal was that it indeed was being used to activate um, listening devices that had been embedded in the embassy walls. It was not a mind control device, nor was it a harassment device, although it certainly has had long-term consequences on the people who served there, if nothing else, because of the secrecy that it was kept under. It's too soon to say what is causing the symptoms being reported in Cuba, but I suspect we'll hopefully know more in the months and perhaps even years ahead. Jim, John, Robbie, thanks for joining me today. ER listeners, we do love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.